So Isaiah 55. Um, in this passage, uh, we're going to look at the second half of the chapter, verses 6 through 13. In this passage, Isaiah explains the spiritual principles about how God gives blessing to his people. How many here want God's blessing? All hands should be raised, by the way. Um, So what do those blessings look like, and how do we get them? So Isaiah answers these questions. What does it mean to repent? Why should a person repent? I mean, why should I give up all those good things that I get from sin? And what should I expect after I repent? But above all, the central question that Isaiah answers is, in what way is God different than us? In what way is God different than us? Of course, God is different from us in so many ways. He's big, we're small. So it's fascinating to see what Isaiah focuses on. So let's read the passage, Isaiah 55, 6 through 13. He writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out With joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. So before we look at the details of this, Let me give you first some context, some historical context. Isaiah wrote this book of prophecy about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah is known as the most talented writer of ancient Israel. Most of his uh, his prophecy, including the portion we just read, is composed in beautiful poetic form. Isaiah lived to see the end of of the Assyrian period of domination of the Middle East. During his lifetime, he saw the northern kingdom of Israel fall. After the Assyrians besieged Samaria, it fell in 722 BC, uh, BC, and then those 10 tribes were taken into exile into Assyria. Isaiah also was a witness to the Assyrian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah in 701 BC during the reign of Hezekiah. During that time, the, Egypt, um, sorry, the Assyrians came in and destroyed most of the cities of, of the southern kingdom. However, you might remember that, that um, 
Jerusalem was spared because God divinely wiped out the Assyrian armies that were camped around it. And so the first part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, are focused on this threat that came from the superpower of Assyria. Um, However, the rising Neo-Babylonian Empire presented another threat to the people in this region. And that threat, the threat of Babylon, is the focus of the section we're in, verses, I'm sorry, chapters 40 through 66. Now, one of the most interesting aspects of this second part of the book is this feature that's called the servant songs, where we read about the the servant uh, of Yahweh. And the most famous of those, you probably know, uh, is Isaiah 53. And of course, our chapter, Isaiah 55, is is just two chapters after that. And so what we're looking at now is the the culmination of this whole series of of songs that are explaining how God will free his people from these threats of the nations. And the, the, ma- the major theme of this chapter we're looking at is that the son of David will come and bring blessings and mercy to his people and to the nations around them. All right? But in the section we're going to look at here, uh, we're going to divide it up into three, three things, three steps. We're going to see three steps to receiving God's blessing, three steps to the blessing of the Lord. And it's uh, repentance, renewal, and rejoicing. And each one of these steps then leads to the the other. When you repent, then God promises to renew you, and that, of course, will lead to blessing. So the first step to the blessing of the Messiah, really, is repentance. Look with me at verses 6 and 7, where he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. Now, repentance is one of the most important themes in all the prophetic books. Um, But we want to make sure we understand how the prophets use that word. Now, when we were in Ukraine for all those years, uh, the believers there was delightful. They would talk about how someone repented. But when they used that word, they talked about how generally how someone came forward in a public service to make a testimony to testify to a decision they'd made to give their life to God, which, of course, is a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with that. And that is a part of repentance, but that's not what the prophets were talking about. When the prophets used the word repentance, literally it's the word to return, which we have in verse 7, let him return to the Lord. They're talking about deep sorrow over personal sin that results in a change in their daily life. It's when someone gives up sin. And the classic definition of that we find in Isaiah chapter 1, where he says, verses 16 and 17, cease to do evil, learn to do good. This is the correct replacement theology when you replace sin with goodness. That's what repentance is. And we see that repentance in in two parts. First, it's the attitudes. He says, seek the Lord, call upon him. This is the attitude of a heart that is ready to give up their sin. Seeking and calling are attitudes of the heart that desires God, that seeks him. Question, when can God be found 
And when is he close? What do the scriptures say about that? One wonderful example of someone who discovered how close God is, we find in Genesis 28, when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau. He had to spend the night somewhere. He didn't have a pillow, so he used a rock. God gave him a miraculous dream. And he saw that uh, God was sending angels continually down to earth. And we know that angels are to help people. So when he woke up from his sleep, he said this, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This was news to Jacob. He said, God is right here. Paul said the same thing when he was preaching in Athens in Acts 17, 27. Paul said that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Unbelievers... People who don't have a connection with God, they have this feeling that God or the gods are far away, so on some high mountain, far from us. That's not the message of the scriptures. And it's interesting to read what Moses taught the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, the purpose of Israel was to show the nations that God is close. For what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him. He uses those same words. He's close, and you can call on him. And that's comforting. That's comforting. That's comforting because I'm sure there's people sitting here today that are, that are struggling. And it says in uh, Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. God senses when someone is in sorrow, and he is right next to that person. And so these verses confirm that God is always ready to receive a repentant sinner, which is what we read in Psalm 145, 18. God, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. It's a wonderful saying, and it's so true. No matter how many steps you take away from God, it's just one step back to him. He's right there. So that's the, the attitude of a repentant sinner. And Isaiah says that also there's actions involved in repentance. In verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Repentance is shown by actions. Actually, repentance requires actions. If there's no actions, it's not repentance. And the question is, from whom does God demand this? It says here, the wicked and the man of unrighteousness, the person, the unrighteous person. Now, typically, a person will not repent because they say to themselves, I'm a good person. I'm not that bad. And we have this very wicked an unhelpful tendency to compare ourselves to people who are worse than us. And so we look around, well, I'm better than him and her and him and her. No, I'm not so bad. However, our comparison isn't supposed to be to other fallen sinners, but to the Holy One of Israel. And as Jesus said, we tend to see the splinter in other people's eyes when we don't see the beam that's sticking out of our own. Jesus said that anger is murder in the heart that lust is adultery in the heart, and that 
God expects us to love our enemies of all things. And so by Jesus' standard of the law, we all need to repent. All of us need to repent. And so the topic of repentance is so important because God blesses us when we repent from our sin. And repentance then leads to the next verses that are the focus of this passage. So the first step of blessing is repentance. The second step is renewal, which we read about in verses 8 through 11. Actually, in the beginning of verse 7, he says, he begins to turn the corner to this topic. He says, let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and return to our God. And he will, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, as you can see, this is the longest section of the passage, and it's really the focus of Isaiah's thought. And you remember the question I, I posed at the beginning, how is God different than us? God is different from, from us, Isaiah is saying, in that he loves. God loves. And he loves to forgive, and he longs to help us. He wants to help us. And it starts with mercy. And the idea here is that God, God in his mercy always renews a repentant sinner. And that God's love will revive and rejuvenate a repentant sinner without fail. Always, always, always. And it starts with uh, feelings and forgiveness. He says in verse 7 that God will have compassion on that person who repents. What does it mean to have compassion? It means that God feels pity. And the idea here of this word is a feeling of concern, not based on logic, but based on emotion. This is the emotion of a mother, because it comes from the same root of the word as uh, womb, because both, have, both compassion and womb have connotations, associations with motherhood, care, nurture, pity. A mother sees her child. And she wants to help the child because she knows the child can't help itself. When the baby starts to cry, the mother cannot but help but feel concern. Why? Well, it's maternal instinct. So what Isaiah is saying, that God has this instinct towards sinners. He sees sinners that need help. They're weak. They can't help themselves. And God instinctively says, I want to help that person. Uh, David knew this about God, which is why he prayed in Psalm 51.1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Blot out my my transgression. David knew that God wanted to help. And this is... Seen, God's compassion is seen in the way he forgives. He says, for he will abundantly pardon. And this is a beautiful phrase. Literally, it reads, he will increase to forgive, but that doesn't make that much sense. It's an idiom idiom that means that God will thoroughly, completely forgive. It means he will intensely, 
thoroughly forgive. In other words, God wants to forgive every single one of our sins. He sees this sin, he wants to forgive it. He sees that sin, he wants to forgive it. He remembers it. He knows we did this and that and the other. He knows every wrong thing we've ever done, and he wants to forgive every single one of those things. That's amazing. That's amazing. And this is, and the point that he makes then in verse 8 is, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. I am not like you. If, if you knew all my sins, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. <laughs> we don't have that capacity to forgive like God does. Um, I'll tell you, um, when someone offends me, it's difficult for me to forgive even when the person's sorry. And when someone's you know, done something bad to me and, and I forgive them and the relationship is restored, it's hard for me not to remember it. And, it's, and it takes, it's a challenge for me not to let that past offense mess up our relationship now. God is not that way. For God, it's an instinct. It just happens. It's so glorious. And that's why he says, my thoughts and my ways, uh, which ways, of course, is another way of saying lifestyle. Thoughts is another way of saying, you know, my, my thoughts, my meditations, intentions and plans. And the idea is that God is not like us. One commentator put it this way. Most people have difficulty truly forgiving those who wrong them, but God is willing to love the most unlovely and ungodly, even forgive those who do unforgivable evil against others and blaspheme the name of God. In fact, he planned to cause the suffering servant, which was just a few chapters before this, to die so that many sinful people will will live. The great reformer John Calvin said the same thing. He said, Men usually judge and measure God from themselves. For their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased. Therefore, they think that they cannot be reconciled to God once they've offended him. But the Lord shows in this passage that he is far from resembling men, as if he had said, I am not a mortal man that I should show myself to be harsh and irreconcilable to you. Another man said, Another, uh, another author wrote, Men find it hard to pardon those who have, who have offended them. But God can pardon and pardon abundantly. I love how Spurgeon wrote it. He said, writing about this passage, he said that God's thoughts are love, pity, and tenderness. Ours are forgetfulness, ingratitude, and hard-heartedness. Um, And it was just delightful to remember what Jesus said about his heavenly father in the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, 35. He says of God, his father, that he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. God is kind to people who don't even thank him for what he gives. And God is kind to people who are evil. Now, if we were in charge, those evil people wouldn't last very long on this earth, right? We'd say, okay, you're on the naughty list, you're you're out of here. God is not that way. Even when someone is evil, like a really evil person, God is still kind to them. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. And it just shows how different God is from us. So we must agree with the prophet Isaiah. God's ways are so much higher than ours because our ways are normally very low, base, cruel, unforgiving. So what does that mean? Well, praise God, he doesn't forgive the way we do. (laughs) Praise God that when he forgives us, he forgets about it. Another prophet said, it's like he takes it and he throws it into the depths of the sea. There's no way you can bring it back up again. It's over. It's gone. Praise God that he doesn't remind us of our sins. And instead, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can overcome it and not do it again. So some important applications that I thought of. We should worship God for his goodness and kindness that we see in his compassion and forgiveness. And friends, we should repent of our sin. If God is so willing to forgive us, why do we hold on to it? Let it go. And also, of course, we should be willing to forgive others. Forgive others also. If, if God has forgiven us of everything, can't we forgive someone else of just one or two things? And the next verses explain how God's forgiveness brings renewal. God is not like us because in his mercy he renews man. And we read verse, uh, people, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, by which, uh, be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So Isaiah continues to explain how God's mercy works in our lives. It's like the rain, uh, the snow, that allow the earth to be productive. He explains that God shows his mercy, first of all, and primarily by his word. That's how he accomplishes that. His word comes, and that's what touches the sinner, and that's what um, provides us forgiveness. It's a beautiful illustration, almost like a parable, and God provided that illustration for us to see today, since it's raining. Um, And you probably know a little bit about the geography of Israel because it's pretty similar, actually, to, to what we have here in California, which is, if we don't have rain, it's, it's bad, <laughs> really bad, uh, because the main way that the crops would grow was when the rains would come. Uh, and they were supposed to come a certain, they, they typically would come at certain times, but if they didn't or they, or they didn't come enough, then, then the people were facing uh, famine. And so they knew they needed it. And in the, in the scriptures, almost exclusively, precipitation, whether it's dew or rain or like here, snow, is almost always seen as uh, emblematic of how God is good to us and how he cares for us. And so it's as if he says that God's word is the bridge from heaven to earth, right? The blessing comes down, and that bridge is God's word. And in his grace and in in his forgiveness, uh, we're renewed by that word. It comes to us gently like the rain and causes us so we can have productive lives. Now, the question uh, we we should... uh, we should be asking, what is it 
that God's word will accomplish. In the context here, what does he want to succeed? Friends, what God's word, what God wants to accomplish with his, with his word is to forgive us. God's desire is that we would be freed from a life of captivity to sin and all the terrible consequences that come with that, and we would be in, instead have spiritually productive lives. That's what he wants to accomplish, and he wants to accomplish it today. So when you walk out of here and you forgot your umbrella and you're getting wet, just remember God is good. God is good. Uh, so what are some applications for this idea of God's renewal? Well, I think one of the most important is what we read in Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which is just another clever way of saying the Scripture, God's Word. If you really want to live, you need the Scripture. And too often... We're seeking our happiness and our pleasure and our contentment in things aside from that. But look at verse 2 of this chapter. Look how Isaiah set this up. Verse 2, he says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. And then down in our verse here, in verses 10 and 11, he explains how that's going to happen. It's going to happen by his word. And of course, it's, it should remind us also what the Lord Jesus said about himself in John chapter 6. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. So, the third step to blessing then is rejoicing. We've seen repentance, renewal. And that leads to the third step, which is rejoicing in verses 12 and 13. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the the nettle, the myrtle will come up. It will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. What is he talking about? Well, Isaiah here is, uh, it's a little cryptic, but of course he didn't speak these words in, in a vacuum. There's a context of the whole book. And Isaiah many times had talked about a time in the future when God would completely uh, uh, fix everything. Uh, for example... In Isaiah chapter 2, he talked about uh, when all the nations would stream to Zion and they would come because they wanted to to study, I guess at a seminary there or something, but they wanted to study God's law there. And it says in Isaiah 2.4 that nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. It will be a time of absolute world peace. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to reading the Wall Street Journal and not reading about the war in Ukraine. Um, It it will also be a time when nature will be renewed. In Isaiah 11, he talked about this this same issue when he said, for example, the wolf will dwell with the lamb 
and the leopard will lie down again with the young goat. Um, I read in the Jerusalem Post of all places uh, an incident that happened in Woodland, here, Woodland Hills not very long ago where it's an Israeli family that lives in Woodland Hills and they, were, they brought the one kid home from school and the two-year-old had gotten out of the car and a coyote came over, ran over I guess, knocked down the two-year-old and, two-year-old and started dragging it off. Is that the most terrifying thing you've ever heard? Um, thankfully, you know, the dad noticed, scared the coyote off, but they were shaken. I mean, this is not, this is not, you know, um, I don't know, what's a more far off place here? Uh, Upland, or I don't know, where's farther out? I mean, this is, this is Woodland Hills, for goodness sake. Um, all that to say that there will come a time when all those awful things you see in National Geographic that the animals do to each other, they'll stop doing it. And you won't have to be afraid of them. And in Isaiah 11, it says that a little, a little child can play by the viper's den. I mean, you know, I don't like snakes, period. But vipers, no. Um, that'll all be changed. This is what Isaiah is talking about. Let's look at it, look at it a little, in a little more detail. He says, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. Now, many, many times when Isaiah uses this word, go out, he's referring to the exodus. Um, and be led forth with peace. Uh, and some commentators think, oh, um, he's talking about when they returned back from Babylon. You know what? When the, the Israelites returned from captivity in Babylon, it wasn't, there wasn't that much joy, and they certainly did not, did not have peace. So he can't be talking about that, which is why I think he's referring to this um, period of worldwide peace that we understand as the millennium. And he said, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy. The trees will clap their hands. This is, of course, metaphorical because trees don't have hands. They can't clap. It's talking about the abundance of, uh, in nature will be like, like singing and clapping. And then there'll, there'll, there'll be this, this change he talks about in verse 13, which really, which really is a reversal of the curse. When Adam was cursed, um, when the ground was cursed because of Adam, rather, it says in Genesis 3.18, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So here we see that instead of the thorn, we have a cypress. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle, which is, uh, the myrtle was a, also uh, a poetic symbol of the nation of Israel. And so in other words, uh, there'll be good things coming on, uh, a reversal of the, of the curse, and then he says, an everlasting sign, a memorial to the Lord. He's talking about something that will go on forever and ever, amen. This is what we're looking forward to. Uh, and it's good to know, friends, it's good to know, it's the best thing to know that uh, despite the difficulties and sins and trouble we will experience on this earth, God promises to bring it all to the right conclusion. When good will triumph over evil, and all of God's enemies will be wiped out, and only the good people will be left. And so you won't have to worry about, what are my neighbors like? You will only have good neighbors. How we are looking forward to that. Okay, well, let me conclude with uh, three thoughts from this passage to review these three different steps we've seen. First, 
talking about repentance, you cannot seek the Lord in sin. All of us need to seek the Lord. Yes, there was a time when we needed to repent and turn to the Lord and be saved. But for us, repentance is a way of life. One man explained it this way. Quote, it is like a man who leaves his home and his wife to live apart from her. He is in a sinful sexual relationship committing adultery. At the same time, he is calling his wife. So she asks him, are you forsaking the other woman? He says, no, I can't do it. She answers, then you're not seeking me. Your call is empty. You will seek me and find me as your wife when you forsake her and all others for me alone, just like you vowed. So seeking the Lord means forsaking the ways and the thoughts that are displeasing and dishonoring to him. You can't seek him where he is not found in sin. Second thought. God wants us to seek him, and he wants to renew us with his word. The prophet Micah said in 7.18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He will not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. I hope you've seen that. God is different from us in that he really is drawn to our weakness because he wants to help us. And this is the the center of the gospel. Jesus loved us in, in compassion. He came down and died in our place so that we can have forgiveness that allows us to have peace with God. Um, third thought, God promises us eternal glory. The scriptures tell us there will be a new heavens and a new, new earth. That is what we live for. Amen? All right. Will you pray together with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to hear from your word. We thank you that you've given it to us. And Lord, we want to come in humility before your heavenly throne. And we want to bow the knee to the lordship of of Jesus, who was born to be a sacrifice for us. Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to commit ourselves again to to you. We pray for all of those who would be listening to this, but in pride, they refuse to admit their sin. We pray for those who have, who have offended others around them or are too proud to admit it. Lord, it's so hard for us to repent, so we pray, God, help us. Help us to repent. Um, God, we pray for those who feel trapped or chained by their sin. Lord, we pray that they would be encouraged as they've heard of your desire to help, your compassion, your forgiveness. Help them. Help those, oh God. And most of all, we praise you and thank you that you love us, that you've shown us mercy. God, we're so grateful that you're holy, holy, holy. You're completely different than us, and you're completely different in your love for us. And Lord, we want to be more like you. Help us to be compassionate. Help us look at people's weaknesses and problems like you do with a desire to help. Lord, help us to be eager to forgive people who've sinned against us just as you are eager to forgive us so that we have a wonderful and 
in a relationship full of joy with you. Lord, help us to have those kind of relationships with each other too, we pray. Um, and we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus, who was so humble and lowly of heart that he invites us to come to him. We pray in his name. Amen.